Hello, and welcome to episode 23 of the Tennis Abstract podcast. I am Jeff Sackman from TennisAbstract.com, and with me is my co-host, Carl Bialik. Hi there, Carl. Hey, Jeff. Welcome back, and for those of you who aren't familiar with Carl's work, I encourage you to check out his own podcast, which is the 30 Love podcast, which has way more different people than this one does. We're at a total number of contributors of three, and 30 Love is well into the dozens. So if you don't like us, um, 30 Love is probably a good place to go. Except you'll um, still hear my voice. I'm sorry. You'll st- still hear Carl's voice. You can't have everything just by switching podcasts. But we have a lot to talk about this week. As you Jeff will. is so negative, by the way. If you like this show, you would also like 30 Love, is another way to say it. Sure. Yep. And... Yeah, that, that's, that's all we can say about that. Uh, check out 30 Love. So before you do that, we want to talk about Rafael Nadal and what are now Las Undecimas. My Spanish is a little rusty, but it basically means he's still winning a ton of tournaments. He's now won 11 Monte Carlos, 11 Barcelonas with his win over Stefano Tsitsipas yesterday. And... He's poised to win his 11th Roland Garros in a few more weeks. And this has got to be viewed as one of the great accomplishments in all of sport. I mean, the, the longer he does it and as dominant as he, he has been when he does it, I, I don't know how you can compare anything to that. Um, Carl, can you just get us started with a rundown of, of, of what Nadal has accomplished in Monte Carlo and Barcelona? And, and I'm curious if, if you agree that as far as tennis accomplishments go, is there anything that can top this? I don't think so. I think Rafa on clay is number one. You know, maybe Borg on clay was in the same conversation a few years ago. And a few years ago, it looked like we could start wrapping up Rafa's accomplishments. In 2015, he had had some recent losses to Novak. He got kind of blown out by Djokovic in the quarterfinals at the French Open. And in a way, that made... Rafa's accomplishments seem even more impressive because once he looked human again on clay, we could appreciate what what an incredible accomplishment it had been to look superhuman for so long. And then he started winning the, all these tournaments again. You know, this year, coming off a really, really tough winter, uh, he lost early at the Australian Open, not that early, but by his standards of reaching the final the year before. And being up in the fifth set, he, he crashed out in the quarterfinals to, to Chilich. He had to retire with injury. He basically skipped the rest of, of the hardcourt winter, even though he'd, he'd done well the previous year and uh, only been losing at, at the Australian Open Indian Wells in Miami to, to Federer, who was playing some of the best tennis any, any of us had seen on hardcourt, so no shame in that. And... Rafa just couldn't couldn't match it this year. So again, this year, there was reason to think, hey, he might not extend his clay mastery because he might not even be healthy enough to play. And then Davis Cup came around, and he dominated a couple of solid... Well, he dominated a solid Philip Kohlschreiber and a, an ascendant just reached the Miami final, Alexander Zverev. And then he comes to the two tournaments he's dominated more than any other clay tournament except the French Open, which is saying a lot because he's also dominated Rome and, and you know, other to- smaller tournaments that he used to play. 
And I don't think he lost a set or even was forced to a tiebreaker in, in Monte Carlo and Barcelona. And he played some tough opponents. He played Goffin and Dimitrov and Team. And he makes tough opponents look easy with some of these score lines. I mean, he bageled Goffin, who's playing like one of the maybe five or ten best players on tour right now. So it's it sounds a little rote and boring because it's so one-sided and there's only so much we can say. I mean, Esther Vergeer in wheelchair women's tennis is about the the closest analogy I can think of when she was in her prime. Rafa's uh, going to turn 32 at the French Open, and y- young challengers are coming up, and Djokovic is, is still trying despite his injuries, but it just seems like completely ordained that he's going to win the French Open and that he'll win at least one of Madrid and Rome in between, which is remarkable. Yeah, it it really is. And the question now isn't isn't like you said when will he fade or will he will his body be able to support him throughout this? It's a question of whether anyone will be able to beat him. We're kind of back to the same conversations we were having, I don't know, 6 7 years ago uh, before the injury started to strike and he was just starting to rack up these, these impressive year by year title totals. Uh, now, when we we watch something like, as you say, not even have to play a tiebreak, he he won ten straight sets in Barcelona. Similar story in Monte Carlo. Looking through his his event history in Barcelona, it's it's just ridiculous. Like I, I was trying to count yesterday and kept getting distracted, but he's lost like I don't know four or five sets ever in Barcelona. That's probably an, an exaggeration, but it, it, in his wins, like virtually all of his wins in Barcelona have been in straight sets. He's lost a couple matches since. 2003, and that, that, that's it. That's just, it's just out of control. So, as you point out, he's played some of the top contenders, the, the guys who should be at least in the conversation, like Goffin and Team and Dimitrov. He hasn't played Djokovic for a while on clay, and Djokovic is struggling. Uh, Federer's out. Uh, Del Potro is coming back for the, the, the two Masters events, so he could be a factor. But who do you think the next guy is to beat Nadal on clay? You know, are we even watching him play right now? It's a great question. And before we even talk about the next, I think we should probably give a quick nod to the to the last ones to do it, do it more than once. So Team has done it a couple of times. Fabio Fanini has done it two or three times, I think twice, and then once on hard courts. Djokovic has done it a bunch and probably is the most impressive because he was probably doing it when Rafa was otherwise dominating everyone else and at his peak. And let's let's remember Roger Federer, who has taken so much abuse over his career for mostly losing to Rafa on clay. And those losses were mostly racked up 10 or more years ago. And then Roger got smart and kind of avoided Rafa on clay. And in retrospect, his, his ability to have beaten him a couple of times and come close is pretty impressive because Rafa on clay is a singular force. Now, I think I just mentioned the next guy to beat Rafa. I think it'll probably be team just because he's young and improving and he's done it before. And I don't want to overweight the fact that Rafa totally dominated him in Monte Carlo. Now, I'm not saying that team will do it this year. I'm not saying he has even a 50% chance of being the next one to do it. But I think him or maybe Fonini, if, if he can sort of manage to be brilliant in the matches that get him to Rafa, or maybe he just draws him randomly in an early round. Uh, I think it's probably one of those two, because right now Djokovic just doesn't look like Djokovic. But yeah, I think betting on the guys who have done it more than once in recent years is probably the, the safest bet. 
Yeah, and you mentioned all of them. I mean, it's it's, it's such a such a short list. That's one of the things that that's easy to forget about when we're talking about just how great Nadal is. There are only a handful of players who've managed to beat him twice on clay, and that list is mostly is just the best. You got Federer, Djokovic, Murray, and then as you say, Fanini, Team, and then David Ferrer, who's probably not a threat anymore. Um, and wasn't most of the time they actually played each other. But yes, as you point out, Fanini has, has won, has beaten Nadal twice, both in 2015. Um, one of those was in Barcelona, shockingly enough. On the other hand, as you point out with Fanini, he needs to have some luck just to get in a position to face him. That's something that Petra and I talked about in our last episode, that Fanini is, it isn't like a Djokovic or a Murray where you can kind of count on him to make the quarterfinals or semifinals and live up to his, his seed. Um, he's probably more likely to face Nadal if he does draw, just draw him in the first or second round of one of these Masters tournaments. So what do you think, Carl, about Alexander Zverev? I mean, Zverev didn't put up that great of a showing uh, against Nadal on a slow clay court in Davis Cup, but he might be, after team, he might be the next possible great clay quarter. I mean, he's not a clay court-focused guy the way Nadal is, but he plays well on clay, he won a Masters event on clay last year. He's he's, got, he's gotten some pretty good wins. Do you think he, he's someone who could conceivably be that next guy to beat Nadal on clay? Yeah, he had a funny win in Rome in the sense that team beat Rafa, Djokovic beat team, and then Zverev beat Djokovic. And I think all those wins were kind of one-sided. So by the transitive law of tennis you realize the transitive law doesn't exist in tennis because, of course, it makes no sense to say Zverev beat Rafa. But I think you have to include Zverev in any conversation about who's going to do what because he's been consistently in the top five. He's been a big match player at Masters, not at Majors, uh, which is where Rafa does most of his work on clay because he pretty much always plays Monte Carlo, Madrid, and Rome. And... Zverev seems to also, like you pointed out in a recent post about Sloane Stevens, he seems to really rise to the occasion in specific weeks. So I wouldn't be surprised if Zverev loses in the first round at one of those two Masters, and then the other one that he goes on a, on a run and at least faces Rafa in a big match where Zverev is playing well. And more so than team, Zverev has the ability to dominate a match no matter who he's playing simply with his serve and with aggression. Now, he's often the opposite of aggressive. He's often passive. But when he is playing aggressively and serving well, he can beat anybody. And we saw that also on a hard court against Federer last year, you know, on a surface that Federer basically didn't lose on last year. Yeah, it's a good point about Zverev's passivity. I think there's a lot of players, uh, not in this generation, but the, the, the generation that's maybe around Nadal's age right now, who uh, they've figured out how to play passively and be pretty good. I'm thinking of someone like, like really like the Frenchman Gasquet and Monfils, who should probably play more aggressive than they do. And we don't need to talk more about Gasquet's and Monfils' tactics, but I think the same sorts of things apply to Zverev. Like I was just thinking of how he managed at Monte Carlo a couple weeks ago. He played, he had to win three set matches against Gilles Mueller, Jan-Leonard Struff, and Richard Gasquet, and then took a set against Kei Nishikori in the semifinals. Not a bad showing on paper, but 
those aren't guys he should have to go to three sets against. I mean, yes, Gay came within a couple points of beating him, um, losing sets to Struff and Mueller on clay. That, that's not what you should be doing if you're trying to put yourself in a conversation as, as a guy who's a favorite to win a Masters event on a surface. And I think you hit the nail on the head that he, he hasn't quite figured out what his clay court, court tactics are. And if he gets too passive, then he, he's not an all back there. I mean, and nobody is, but he... He doesn't have the, the defensive skills to stand you know, a meter behind the baseline and just chase balls down until the other guy falls over. He has to be more aggressive, and he has the skills to be more aggressive, but when you're playing that defensive game, you're going to end up in these two-hour and 15-minute long slogs against Jan Lennart Struff. Yeah, is, Jeff, I think what's unfortunate is he does have the defensive skills to win with difficulty against most guys, and that's why he keeps falling into it, is that he doesn't realize he could actually win those same matches more quickly and with less strain on his body. Yep. He has I, just I enough defensive skills. Yeah, and if, if he does get that tactical mix, then that's a deadly combination. You know, we're talking about a, maybe not a Djokovic-level player, but let's say a Murray-level player who has the offensive skills and this elite-level defense. But you got to get the tactics right or else you turn into Gal Malfi's. And... I, I think Zverev has a much higher future than that, but maybe that's the uh, maybe that's the downside forecast for for Zverev at this point. Well, what's remarkable is he's probably already exceeded Munfi's career outside of majors. I mean, with the Masters, he's won, and the finals, he's reached, and his peak ranking. He's already shown that how much higher his ceiling is because he's already exceeded it outside the majors. That is true, definitely. So, the, so the question is really how soon he can break through. Uh, and actually beaten it all. I mean, that, that's the test. He's, he's had a couple of big wins, but he, I think I wrote a post about this last year that he he got those two masters partly because of lucky draws. I don't remember if that was the focus of the post or just a side note, but um, but he, he ends up he ends up looking really good because he won two masters events on different surfaces in the same year, and there aren't a lot of players who've ever achieved that you know, outside of the, the, the same big four type names that keep coming up. But he might not quite be that good because he, he's gotten a little lucky and he had to play uh, his routes to those titles. But, yeah, if he were to put that together and, and beat Nadal on clay, then that totally changes the conversation. And all of a sudden, we might start thinking of him as the heir apparent on clay instead of Dominic Thiem. Uh, that, that would certainly make things more interesting for whenever Nadal does have to hang up the racket. Why would Zverev make it more interesting than Team, or or is it that we'd have both and that would be more interesting? That we'd have both exactly, because right now it, it it seems to me like if if the big four just vanished, it it would be Team's slam to lose. I mean, he wouldn't be guaranteed at a, at a Nadal level, but but he's the guy who's consistently been there as as a clay court contender. Um, but I think if Zverev beat Nadal, then Zverev might all of a sudden look like the number one, and you'd have you'd have a battle there. For the, for the heir apparent. Um, yeah, I think that's what would, would make it more interesting. Have Team and Zverev played on clay? No, I am not sure. Um, they have played several times. It seems like they keep playing each other at finals in 250s and that sort of thing. <laughs> Actually, no, they, they played their first three matches against each other um, on clay. All 2016, Munich, Nice, and Roland Garros. Uh, team won all three, but team lost a set in all three. Uh, since then, they've played twice on hard courts, but not since February 2017. So I'm actually a little bit surprised that they yeah. haven't played each other. I think the, 
those four in 2016 got me thinking that they were playing each other all the time, and I haven't updated that observation since then. <laughs> well, um, it, it is promising for their clay rivalry that that each, all of their matches, uh, the loser won a set. I think I don't put too much into the fact that team won all of them, especially because that was back in 2016. I think so. I've made so many strides last year. But, yeah, that, yeah, that could be a fun rivalry. Yeah, definitely. And it's easy to forget just how young Zverev still is relative to most of the field. So those three matches in 2016 basically happened right after Zverev's 19th birthday. Mm-hmm. So he, he should have a lot more ceiling uh, room to grow from there than the team does at this point. So what do you think about Del Potro, Carl? Um, we haven't seen him on clay yet. He, he's deliberately playing a limited clay court schedule. Uh, but he had the, a really big spring in Indian Wells in Miami. Do you think do you think he has a shot to be the guy who takes down Rafa? Yes, I do. I I think because he won his major on hard courts, we sometimes overweight his ability on hard versus clay. But he has he's had some really nice clay results too, including twice in the French Open quarters or semis, pushing Federer to five sets. And we know that he can dominate anyone, including Rafa, when he's playing aggressively and playing well and playing aggressively and, and actually landing the ball in. So, you know, all of these are could questions, and I don't give anyone much of a chance. But Del Potro would be one of the very highest chances. I, I think with him, it'll be about getting consistent enough on clay that he can actually make it deep into the French Open because with the seeding he'll he wouldn't face Rafa until the later rounds. But I would I would love to see that match. I mean, when I think of the sort of top twenty players who I would find it interesting to see Rafa play on clay, as opposed to, yeah, this guy is high ranked, but I think I've seen this movie before and it's pretty bad. Del Potro is definitely in the first group. I would I would definitely want to see that. And I know that Rafa could dominate him, but I don't expect Del Potro to play passively in that match. Yeah, I think that's that's the test. And Del Potro is another guy like the, the Zverev tactical decisions we were talking about who can be great when he's playing aggressive, but also has a tendency to, to back up a little too much, play a little too passive when going aggressive is, is the direction he has to go. Um and this is a good segue into another topic I, w- I wanted to touch on this week, which is the couple of posts I wrote on the Tennis Abstract blog over the weekend on return aggression. And what I found for, I, I isolated 16 players who I thought were interesting and looked at how aggressive they were on return on the different surfaces. And Del Potro is actually one of the most passive guys in that group on play courts. He's actually a pretty passive returner in general. This is just in terms of, getting a lot of returns back but not hitting a lot of winners or inducing a lot of forced errors with his return. If, if you want to look at guys who are, are playing aggressive on the return, at least, I know you're talking about something more general, but if we're specifically looking at the return, the, the aggressive guys are, are Isner, who's in a, in, on his own planet in terms of how aggressive he is on clay courts. But then you also have a, a trio of Marin Cilic, Nick Kyrgios, and Jack Sock. And do you think, Carl, that it, this is something I think we talked about last year when we were first starting up this podcast, is you wouldn't pick any individual player as likely to upset Rafa. I mean, you got to give Rafa something like a 90% chance against just about anybody on tour right now on clay, especially at Roland Garros. But if you were to, to 
think about the think about the danger to Rafa, it's it's that he'll face a couple of these guys who are going to play really high risk tennis, like an Isner or a Kyrgios. If he if he had to place two or three of those guys, then he might be in danger. I mean, do you think that's still the case that that a bigger threat than say Dominic Team might be the Isners and the Kyrgioses of the world? If you hadn't said Team on that first one, if you'd said almost everyone else, I would agree. I think Team can actually out Rafa Rafa. I don't think he's likely to, but I think that's kind of how he won, like somewhat aggressively, but also very much playing a Rafa style. But after Team. I do think it's someone like Isner having a really good day with his aggression. Although when I heard those names and heard they were extreme outliers on returns, I thought maybe they're not doing it right because they're actually bad returners and they're not terrible ralliers. I mean, we saw in Miami how well Isner can actually play some rallies and he was aggressive in the rallies, but I don't think he was several standard deviations outlier on the rallies. So it did make me think, yeah, it's probably good those guys are aggressive, and if they faced Rafa, their best chance would be b- being aggressive, but maybe not as aggressive on the return as they're being. Well, just and just to clarify, I, I, I mentioned Isner, Chilich, Kyrgios, and Sok in the same breath, but that's not really appropriate. Uh, what I found was that the, the average clay court return performance just across the whole population of players is about a quarter of a standard deviation lower than the average across all circles. Lower in aggression, so, yeah. In, in Yeah. And Isner on clay is a full standard deviation above the mean for any surface. So he, he's, at, he's at plus one, whereas the average is, is minus a quarter. The other three guys I mentioned, Chilich, Kyrgios, Sok, they're all between neutral, like 0.0 and 0.1. So they're the only other guys who are positive. I mean, even, even Federer's negative, as you said, Del Potro's quite negative. Uh, but they're, they're not even in the same league. They're, they're like not even one quarter as above average aggressive as Isner is. And Isner is really bad at returning. Like his rate of return one return games one on all surfaces is really low. And his clay results are pretty poor. Uh, and Kyrgios and Saka have pretty poor clay results in recent years too. So I, I agree we're, we're lumping together different, different guys. But Chilich too, I think, has underperformed on clay relative to hard. And I think Chilich can be a good clay quarter. So I'm especially talking about Isner, but even with the other guys, I'm thinking maybe it's maybe it's not working for them. Maybe maybe the answer is they need to be more aggressive and more like Isner, and maybe the balance is somewhere else. But I'm just hypothesizing that it could be something about their unusual return aggression that helps explain their underperformance on return and on clay. Yeah, and it could also just be correlation, not causation, that guys who are bad on clay in tend to be more aggressive just because they don't have any other tactics to draw on. You know, I think that's that's a fair point to make about Isner returning on play because well, what is he going to do? I mean, if he doesn't win the point with, with a big return or rushing in behind the return or something like that, then he's immediately at a huge disadvantage. So it, it, to me, it seems like a smart tactic to be almost Dustin Brown level aggressive returning when he can, but... It's not going to make him good. It's just going to make him a little better than not very good. Yeah, that's a good uh, point. I mean, it could be that, that some of what we're seeing is a re- reaction to poor results on the surface. And it could also be in the case of Kyrgios and Sock. They don't choose to play a lot of clay. Uh, and Kyrgios, that's been partly due to injury. and Maybe he has more potential there. But 
it might be that they're not super clear on what their tactics are either, uh, and that they're just playing pretty much the same way that they do on, on hard courts, and maybe they get, get a little impatient, and that's what keeps those aggression numbers up. Because actually, Kyrgios and Sock are in the same category as Isner, where they're actually more aggressive on return on clay than they are on hard courts. Not by much, when we're talking about just, um, I don't know, like a, a tenth of one standard deviation. So basically nothing. But but it's a, it's enough of an effect that, that you think, given how, how rarely they're playing on clay, I'm not sure this is actually a tactic. I mean, it's not something they've thought through. Well, it could be that it's the manifestation of something Americans and Australians tend to do on clay, which is rush their way through the season and try to get it over with as quickly as possible. They're rushing their way through the return points and trying to get them over with as quickly as possible. And hey, if a bunch of these aggressive returns land in and they win the match, that's okay. But either way, they don't want to spend much time out on the dirt. Yeah, or, or in Europe at all. <laughs> or in Europe bit. at all, although they're okay with the grass season. That is true. Well, in, in the grass season, you're mostly in the UK. You can go to Nando's every night. <laughs> and life is good. People will say, speak to you in English, yeah. Yeah, in some, some rough approximation of English, yeah. Uh, okay, <laughs> nice. so uh, since, we've, since we've digressed a little into Americans on clay, this is something that, uh, that I uh, have wanted to talk to you for, about for a little while on this podcast, is, is Tennis Sandgren, who is now in the top 50, um, we're, we're talking about an American who is, what, he's, he's turning 27 this year. So once upon a time, he was thought of as a prospect. Um, he toiled on the Challenger Tour for a really long time, and then he, he got into the Australian Open this year. He had this huge run in Australia. He beat Bob Rinka in the second round. He beat Dominic Team in a really impressive five-setter in the round of 16, and then finally lost to Hyung Chung. In the quarters, um, that launched him into the top 60. And then just a couple weeks ago, on the sort of clay in Houston, he reached the final. Not not the toughest uh, draw anybody's ever faced to reach an ATP final, but he, he knocked out Guido Pela and Ivo Karlovic and then lost a three-setter to Steve Johnson. So, incredible results on clay. He, he has the skills to be decent on multiple surfaces. The thing that really caught my eye after winning Houston is that he actually showed up to play Monte Carlo. And this is something we talked about on the podcast a year ago that prompted me to write a post about it, that people never play Houston and Monte Carlo, and never is too strong. They rarely play Houston and Monte Carlo in the back-to-back weeks, and it's mostly Americans, because the Houston draws heavily American, and even more heavily this year. So these guys are missing a huge chance for points because they don't like clay and they don't think they're going to win on it. Sandgren made the final in Houston, had a great excuse to skip at least the first week of the clay season, but he went anyway. Um, He lost to Philip Kohlschreiber and won only four games, so it's questionable whether he should have. But he made the effort, and you said to me in a non-recorded conversation a couple (laughs) weeks ago... That you're now putting on the record. Exactly, yeah that you thought Sandgren would end the year in the top 30, which I feel like is a, is a pretty big prediction for someone who wasn't even inside the top 100 until six or seven months ago and only recently broke into the top 50. So c- can you walk us through that prediction and what, what you expect from Tennis Sandgren? Sure. So a, a couple of thoughts. First, just on that prediction, since you ended there, he got 360 points at the Australian Open 
and he has very few points to defend because so much of his work last year, almost all of it, was on Challenger. It was at Challengers, and he did well at them, but there's only so many points you could win. So my thinking was pretty mathematical rather than deeply tennis-based, which is that if with 360 points, he's going to get into a lot of draws, and he's going to go deep in at least some of them, and he did in Houston. And the challenger level, which you've looked at recently, is lower than the main tour level, but not so much lower that a guy who did really well at challengers wouldn't occasionally do well in main draws. So basically, I thought he would do things like show up in Monte Carlo, show up in Barcelona, and those are both tournaments where if you can avoid Rafa and avoid a few other guys, you could win a few rounds and win some more points. So I guess 360 as a base, like he'll have it at the end of the year because he earned it, the Australian Open, and then add to it any points he makes from good runs at other tournaments. I think he'll have a lot of first-round losses because he's going to be outmatched by a lot of guys he's randomly drawn against. But he's going like, to even be seated like in some Paul places. and Malik Jaziri. The guys he's randomly drawn against, like Philip Kohlschreiber and Malik Jaziri, who beat him the last two weeks. Well, you know, I mean, those are credible guys. Jaziri... Jaziri had a big win last week, I think, after beating Sandgren. Um, I don't remember who. But, hey, look, he's he's a guy who was mostly in challengers last year. Cole Schreiber and Jaziri are tour-level guys. And even if you coin flip and you also say, hey, Sandgren is following in the footsteps of lots of American men with higher rankings than him who lose early in European clay court tournaments, there's no shame in it. But I think he's going to keep showing up to tournaments and he's going to win some of those matches. He had... In, he showed up to the South American clay swing, which also informed my my judgment about him. And I saw him, I think, have a match point against Fabio Fanini, which is no joke on clay. I mean, to me, Fanini is still one of the top 10 or 20 guys on clay. And Sandgren, you know, had a big forehand that he went for and missed, but it was he went for it and it was the right moment. And if he won that match, he could have gone deep in that tournament. I think he only needs a few good runs to beyond what he's already done to get to the top 30 at the end of the year. And I feel like he, he'll have enough chances that'll do it. But yeah, I, you know, I could be wrong. He could end up in the forties. He's not going to end up much lower than that, just based on what he's already accomplished. Yeah. And that, that's, that's a good point with a slam quarterfinal in your pocket. Then that gives you a huge boost in that direction. Simply having 360 points, even if you did nothing else for the rest of the year. And that's, that alone is, number 150 in the world or something. And that's if you sit out the other 51, 50 weeks of the year. Uh, and he's already done a lot more than that. And even if it's just his scheduling approach, like, like you point out, he, um, he, he showed up in South America, which is something that America, that North Americans almost never do. Uh, as I've said, he played Monte Carlo, he played Barcelona, he's back at it this week in Estoril. I think he's playing today. He's got a first rounder against Francis Tiafo. And hey, Tiafo showed up in Estoril. How about that? He did, yeah. Um, and it's kind of a lucky draw for both of them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all-American yeah. match in, in Portugal. They're both glad. Yeah, this is, this is the, the weak week, the not very strong week of, of European clay because there's three different 250s. The top guys are mostly sitting it out, except Zverev's playing in Munich. Um, so, so yeah, there, there's a lot of opportunities there. I think Kevin Anderson is the top seed in Estoril, so there's an opportunity for, for a run there. Um, and, and, yeah, I mean, it, the points really add up in at Masters like Madrid and Rome, so a, a lucky draw in the first round. You get to, you get to 
you missed a chance of, of getting a top seed in the first round because they've got buys in Madrid and Rome. So could win a match or two there as well. So, so yeah, that's a, that's a reasonable point. It, it, it is a bit shocking to think of this guy who played the entire year at Challengers as, as being someone you'd peg as the top 30, which is why I wanted to, to come back to that, uh, that uh, projection of yours. But looking at who is in the top 30, you have some really credible names, but then at 26 and 27, I think, you have Filip Krajinovic and Adrian Manorino. And Krajinovic got there by his deep run of Paris Masters last year. But Manorino is more like the, the, the template for what Sandgren's trying to do. I mean, he made the final at a 500, he made the final at a couple 250s, I think. But Manorino is, is not really a threat to the top guys any week of the year. So it's little harsh. Get... She had Federer uh, close in where, where was that? Do you remember yeah, that's that? on Federer? That's not on <laughs> Federer. Yeah, Federer is a threat to Federer when Federer plays is what you're saying. Not Manorino. Yeah. I enjoy watching Adrian Manorino, but not because I expect him to be the top player. But if Sandgren can become the American Adrian Manorino, then that might not be what he dreamed of when he was 19 years old, but it's a lot better than we would have expected from him even a year ago. When he it would have been really surprising if he was surprised. already dreaming about Adrian Manorino when he was 19. Okay, you got me there. Manorino, I, by the way, I just, just in case it sounded like I agreed with Jeff, I think Manorino is a threat to top guys, and I think we'll see it happen this year. Now that he's turning 30? No, I don't mean he's going to be in the top five. I mean, if he gets another crack at Federer or Rafa off clay or, you know, Djokovic, if Djokovic is, again, deemed a top guy. I think, yeah, I mean, I think Manorino could beat Zverev, too. And Zverev is a top guy these days. Okay. Well, just, uh, let's see, in the, in the last year, Manorino is 2-9 and nine against the top ten. He beat Baron Cilic in Tokyo. It's a solid result. Um, he beat Ronich in Canada, which... Ronich probably was until he healthy, yeah. Yeah, probably not. So in, his, in Manorino's career, he is 4-27 and 27 against the top 10. Not great. The, uh, the other two wins, this might be what you're thinking of, actually, Carl. Um, in 2015, he knocked out Stan Wawrinka. I remember that match. Uh, and then in... That was in Miami. And then... Just last year, he beat Sanga in Monte Carlo, but Sanga was already kind of fading at that point, mm. and that took three sets. So, I, I don't know. I, I, I want to believe you, Carl. I do enjoy <laughs> watching Manorino, but uh, I think that 27 might be about where he belongs. Uh, and 27 losses is a lot bigger than four wins. I'll give you that. I, it could be that I'm just too sympathetic to his style. I really like watching him play. I think he's one of the tactically smartest players. Interesting. Okay. Um, that might be one to, a, a topic to come back to another day. Um, Once we figure out how to measure that. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a long way down the road. <laughs> but actually, this is we talked about Manorino a little bit on the last podcast episode when I had Petter Vets on. And for one thing, I was, I was shocked to learn uh, that he was ranked higher than almost all the other Frenchmen. He's number two in France behind Luca Puy right now. But... That the golden generation has really faded. It really has, which is which is sad. They yeah. they all still look pretty good, but and not good enough clearly. But the question I asked Petter, I'm curious what you, your thoughts are on this, Carl. Is 
how much of Manorino's success is due to being left-handed. I mean, if mm. Manorino had exactly the same skill set, but he was right-handed, do you think he'd be top 30 in the world right now? I do, partly because I don't think he gets that much out of his swinging serve, and his backhand is better than his forehand. Okay. Yeah, I, the, thing that, the things that make him, uh, like you say, the typical lefty advantages he doesn't take advantage of... Uh, the thing that makes him different is he's kind of like a Fanini. He plays balls. Um, he plays balls on the way up. He he's, takes a pretty aggressive court position most of the time. Mm-hmm. He has a very short backswing, so mm-hmm. I think a lot of players have a tough time adjusting to just predicting where the ball's going to go. Um, so so yeah, the, the, those are things that could work for a right-hander as they you know, as they have for Fanini and a few other guys. Um, yeah, that, that's something that I don't want to recap all the conversation we, Petra and I had in the last podcast, but it, it, the possible research question always is, how much of an advantage is it to be left-handed? And I often come back to this tentative conclusion that maybe it's not much of an advantage. Mm, mm-hmm. uh, because That's I mean, where my prior is. I think so, too. I, I think that's... Uh, that is the position you'd have to disprove. Um, and I, I don't really know how to do it. Petter had a couple of suggestions, but uh, it, it gets complicated fast. And I'm not sure the, the data is there to do it. And if you had the Hawkeye data, then mm. you, could, you could look at, you could try to quantify just how good player shots are. And maybe Manorino's shots aren't as good as, you know, a right-handed number 26 or something. Uh, but that's a, that's a long way down the road. I think it's it's a good it's a fitting topic for our first topic of today because I think Rafa often gets not a fair shake because people say, Oh, well he has such a big lefty advantage and I think a right handed Rafa who could do everything Rafa does would have been formidable. I can't say for sure he would have had exactly the same career and maybe his results against Federer would have been different, but would have been a formidable, formidable top of all time player. Yeah. Absolutely. So sticking with Rafa, but onto our, our other major topic that we planned for today's episode, I want to talk about the shot clock. Um, we've talked about it a little bit in the past, but the big news is now the U.S. Open is, is going to go for it. We're actually going to have an on-court shot clock in main draw matches at a Grand Slam. And Carl, I know you were you were at the U.S. Open last year when they tested this. Um, I, correct me if I'm wrong. They were testing in qualifiers and in juniors. Is that right? Yeah, and I think it might have also been wheelchair and a couple of the other events outside the main pro singles and doubles events. Okay, so so clearly somebody thinks it's a good idea. They they think that the the reservations people have always had about the the shot clock can be overcome. What do you think is going to happen? Is, is this a horrible idea? Are players going to revolt? Or is this going to be one of those things where there's going to be a flurry of articles about it for three days, and then by the second week of the tournament, we're all going to be over it? Well, it depends if Rafa's still in the draw. I mean, I think you said <laughs> it links, it connects to the main topic, and that's, that is the bull in the room. Um, I think most players will be fine from day one and most of the rest will be fine from day two. I think we'll hear a lot about it in the first round just because there are going to be a lot of losses in the first round and some of them will be upsets. So there will just be a great volume of players and that will increase the probability that there will be 
at least one player and, and really probably several players who complain about the shot clock and its effect. Um, and I think it'll be, I think it'll be kind of nonsense, you know? I mean, I think that, um, that somebody's going to lose the match and they're going to remember a point where they were penalized or where they felt they had to rush. And later cooler heads will prevail and they'll realize, hey, somebody had to win that match, somebody had to lose. And of course, we're going to point to new variables as an explanation rather than the old variable of how good I am at tennis. But for the small, small handful of players, and I I don't know currently in the women's game uh, who are the players who push it, although I could see Sharapova potentially, and potentially Serena Williams, who at times is fast and at times very slow. But I think we'll especially hear it around Rafa, assuming that Rafa is back to playing on hard courts and able to try to defend his title. Yeah, it, it's going to be a lot about Rafa and, and Djokovic as well. But yeah, Rafa is the one who's likely to go into the U.S. Open as as a possible favorite and also someone who's going to, to push the limit. But, um, before saying anything else about this, I, I've got to tell this amazing story. I was I was just reading up on on the the longest rally in professional tennis, which was two hundred something shots. Oh, oh no. <laughs> It was 200-something shots, and then they kept going. <laughs> They're like, oh, this um, is fun. Let's do it again in this same yeah, rally. Yeah. Um, I'll have to send you a link to this article, Carl. Um, I tweeted it a few days ago. Um, this is from the, the WTA event in Richmond in 1984. It was towards the end of the season. The players are Gene Hefner and Vicky Nelson, neither of whom are terribly consequential in the history of women's tennis. Except. Um, except, exactly. And what I didn't... The reason I was looking this up is because... Um, I've been watching more older matches and, and Edo Salvati, an epic contributor to the match starting project, did this, um, I think it was a 1987 Roland Garros final, where Lendl and Wielander played an 83-shot rally. And it turned out that was the second longest rally in our database behind, mm, I think it was a borg Vilas rally from 1978. So I'm sure there are longer ones, but it, it got me curious. Oh, I miss I those days of tennis, Jeff. <laughs> Yeah, ent- entire days with just one <laughs> service game. And I'd, I remembered hearing about this 643-shot rally from the history of women's tennis, but what I didn't know was, how do we know that? I mean, it, there was no Hawkeye in 1984. There was not even any IBM in tennis in 1984. So how do we know that was 643 shots? So it made me think, just for one fleeting, hopeful moment, that there was video of this match from 1984. So and you could chart I could chart a 643-shot rally, but no, it turns out... It sounds like something out of Infinite Jest, by the way. It, it really does. Um, so those of you who have, I don't know, 30 to 40 hours free on your hands coming sometime soon, this is your prompt to read Infinite Jest. Um, but it turns out that the uh, reporter from the Richmond, I think it was the Richmond Times-Gazette, was watching that match, and a lot of the rallies were going along, so he started tracking the rally length, and that meant that, you know, he had a horrible, horrible cramp in his hand by the time this 643-shot rally ended. So that's how we know, that it's 643 shots, or approximately. Wait, Jeff, can you just pause and imagine for a second, if you're that reporter, that you've just finished charting that rally, and it's probably, like, the hardest physical task you've ever done, but you don't know if a longer rally is still to come, so you have to keep charting. Imagine that. Yeah. That's true. In fact, it's, maybe a longer one did come and, and the cramp was just too bad and we don't know it. 
actually no these are these are really good points and the story is so much better than it addresses this okay so, i gotta read it yeah it's so for one thing yes that's how we know he'd been tracking through the whole match although i don't know if there's any record of how long the other rallies were but this is in the middle of a second set tie break and i think this is <laughs> at like 10 9 or 10 10 or something and or maybe 11 i think it's 11 11 the tie break ends at 13 11 but Spoiler. Something in something in the story I read about it was was a, a bit confusing and contradictory. But basically, it was it was two points away from the set ending. If if the I forget which player won it actually. If 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 the rally had gone the other way, then they would have been one point away from a third set. So they played more than six hours, including this twenty nine minute six hundred forty three shot rally, and came that close to going to a third set. Which I mean, it's just it's mind-boggling. So and we wonder why the press hardly covers tennis anymore. It's because what if this happens again? Yeah, can help them. The, the reporter said actually, he specifically said it wasn't one of the highlights of his newspaper career. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, he was there. So the reason I bring it up now is they play a 29-minute rally, 643 shots, which. It, again, digressing, if you do the math there, it means they are moonballing the whole time. Mm -hmm. the, the Guinness Book of World Records for this, is a couple amateurs played like a 50,000 shot rally, but it only took them 12 hours. So the, the, the point being, they were three times as fast as these two women were in 1984. So they were moonballing the whole time. But finally, at the end, I think it, it's, it's Hefner, but I could be wrong. One of the two wins the point collapses in exhaustion with horrible cramps and can't get up to serve the next point. What happens next? The umpire gives her a time violation. Oh my god. After a 29 minute rally. Can we have that umpire to enforce the shot clock after the inevitable 76 shot rally at the US Open? Well, I think that umpire needs to go straight into the tennis hall of fame. <laughs> that's, that's one of the greatest moments in the history of sport is yes. that time violation. The so, rules must be enforced. The rules must and be And especially enforced. if you just imposed a 643-shot rally for 30 minutes on the reporter and the other 12 people in the crowd, I think you, I think you should pay the consequences. Yes. Because, Absolutely. you know, that's always the argument. You, you often hear from Rafa, but from other players, too, that it's unfair to impose a time violation after a long rally. And the answer is you know what the rule is, and you have some control over the length of the rally, in fact. In fact, you have some say over whether that rally is going to be 60 shots or 6 shots. And yeah. if you needed the longer time after a longer rally, then maybe you should try not to play a longer rally. Yeah, and it, it does, it, it'll tend to balance itself out, because if you, if you do have to go back to the line and, and serve in 20 seconds, then like, maybe you'll still go for that one long rally, but you probably won't play another one. Yeah, and maybe you'll be a little more aggressive on serve because you know that you can't do another long rally so soon after, and maybe that's not such a bad thing to mix up your aggression levels from point to point. Yeah, yeah, maybe not. Um, so I wanted to tell that story just because <laughs> if they could call a time violation then, then I don't know why the umpires aren't calling time violations on, on Rafa and Djokovic now, even if Gene Hefner and Vicky Nelson didn't have quite the same uh, magnitude of star power. They should, like, cut the ribbon on the shot clock at this... Are, are they alive? <laughs> yeah. Well, this, the story I read was from nine years ago, but I mean, okay. they're, not, they're not very old. Um, yeah. 
they were both they were both in their early 20s, I think, in 1984. So, so I, I certainly hope they're both still alive. That that would be phenomenal. I actually I know a couple of people at the USTA. I should um, I should pass that suggestion along. That and then and then they should be handed rackets and asked to play the longest rally they can. And no one should count it because Hawkeye can. Exactly, Hawkeye can count it. So, so with the shot clock, um, the, one of the things that ha- that has has I think kept the shot clock from being implemented for a long time is for one thing there's there's the players who hate the idea because they want to make their own rules, but there's also the concerns that like there's concern about when exactly the the shot clock starts. Like if if there's a lot of applause. Or you know, if a ball boy trips or something, like do you just restart it? How does that work? And also, what if the crowd gets too excited about a countdown? To, you'll hear that sometimes, um, even with like the shot clock in basketball. Like the, the crowd's paying attention, but crowd noise in basketball isn't like, the same issue it is in tennis. So some of these issues they might not come up in in qualies or, or junior tennis because the crowd isn't that big. But do you think there's going to Aside from the griping that you mentioned earlier that's inevitable from players should lose, do you think there are legitimate concerns that could come up when they implement this across you know, across stadiums with thousands of, of people there and, and really big uh, matches with big consequences? You know, I think it's possible, but I also think every issue you just raised is something that umpires and rule makers can huddle over and agree to, and they have four months from now to the start of the tournament to do it. And, you know, I've, I've at times had some gripes about the USTA, but, hey, they put on a really good show and they're really smart. And what they've done to the grounds is beyond what I thought possible in terms of improving the tennis experience there. So I think the shot clock is very much about improving the fan and TV experience. And they've been cautious and slow in how they've implemented it. So that gives them plenty of time to decide on what the rule is, for instance, on applause and most importantly, to socialize that among the players so that nobody has any questions. And the players can then complain and say, that's not how I would handle it. But that's a very different complaint from saying, I didn't know that's how it was going to work. And I, I don't expect them to bungle this because they know that, that a lot of players are going to be watching them really closely. And, you know, some fans who are not going to like it. One, one thing I'd love to see in the data and... I don't know if this is something you directly have access to or we could request and get, but I'd be really interested in to what extent does one player going over the time limit influence the other player to do the same? Because I have a hypothesis that players play slower if they're playing a very slow opponent. And it could be a conscious thing of he's taking more time, so I should too, or it could just be an unconscious kind of mirroring. But either way, if you can break that cycle, which I think the clock will immediately transparently do then i think you're not just uh, speeding up the slow players but you're speeding up everybody yeah that's that's an interesting hypothesis um i I think that is partly true and and often you'll see some friction if you have a fast player come up against a slow player like like a rafa if if somebody like i don't know gail malfi's in speedy mode is lining up to serve when rafa is going through his his whole pre-return routine um then, then you'll see him, you'll see him kind of get stuck and, and have to wait a couple seconds. And sometimes players will complain to the umpire about a slow returner, since technically the returner is supposed to be ready when the server is. But I think no matter what the umpire says, usually the returner ends up winning, and it ends up with the result you suggest. 
the the one factor that the shot clock doesn't address that I'm very curious about is the time between first serves and second serves. And in in the last month or two, I've watched a few um, a, a few pretty old matches. Like I guess the two I'm thinking of are 1979 Grand Slam finals. And what I've noticed is, especially that I think it was a 79 U.S. Open final that John McEnroe won. Um, he took a long time between points, not not in a dollar Djokovic level time, but he was solidly over 20 seconds between every point. And partly that's because he was serving volleying, so he had he had to come back from that. But he he was taking his time. But McEnroe and everybody else I've seen from that era, when they if they miss their first serve, they are back on the line like that. Like I think mm. the, the rule for second serve is is really vague, mm-hmm. but it says something like. The, the second serve should be taken immediately. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, I don't know how Mohamed Layani can enforce immediately, but I, I can say for sure that what Nadal and pretty much every other player, Nadal's the worst, what they are doing is not immediate. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say sometimes they're taking close to 20 seconds, often 15 seconds or more between the first and second serve, and that's obviously not what the rule intended. And I think that might be the biggest difference between where tennis is at now and where it was 30, maybe 40 Good years Good thing he ago. has a high first serve percentage. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you would, you would hope so. I mean, I was just watching the, the Djokovic-Korich match from Monte Carlo a few days ago, and pretty much every single second serve, uh, Djokovic was taking 15 seconds between first and second serves. And do you think, Carl, that... Is there any chance of affecting that with with a shot clock? I mean, would you need another shot clock? Would you just expect? I think you'd need a rule cut? change. I think you would need because, like you said, what does Mohamed Layani do with immediately? I think until there's clarity on that rule, you can't impose a clock on it because immediately does not obviously mean two seconds or ten seconds or zero. You know, it's it's just on. It's just too ambiguous. Yeah, and I think in a high profile match that might even be more important than the time between points because. The points that that lead to the longest breaks, like the sixty-shot rallies between Nadal and Djokovic that we're talking about, like those are the ones where the the, the crowd's engaged. Like mm-hmm. part of that forty-second break, they're they're cheering, and maybe they're even on their feet. So when when TV executives and fans complain about how long tennis matches are, I don't think that's the time they're complaining about. Yeah, not but only it, are the fans engaged, but the TV is showing replays, and they probably want the time. Yeah, absolutely, but. After it, it, after that 60-shot rally and the 40-second break with the replays and the crowd noise, if Djokovic steps back up to the line and misses a first serve, and then we wait another 20 seconds, mm-hmm. that is deadly. Yeah, it's not good TV. It's not good for fans. No, I agree. You know, if, if the USTA and tennis in general is being really strategic here, the strategy could be, okay, we remove the effect of the in-between serve time or the in-between point time and then people love it because I think people will, for the most part, be happy about the change. And then they start looking around for other opportunities. And then when the public and the fans and TV executives are really focused on second serves, that's when we have the sort of political capital to put to work in fixing that problem. Yeah, I mean, it is, it is a separate problem. And it, in, even even despite the you know, tremendous logic I've just put together explaining why it's it's worse than the first serve problem, it isn't something you hear about very much. Uh, so you're right. I think there there needs to be more time. Uh, just people need to be talking about it. It's and, not viewed as a problem. 
And I think what you did of looking at old footage is exactly what people need because I think a lot of fans are fans recent enough that they don't they don't know what's possible. But if you can actually show them, hey, this is what top level tennis used to look like, then there's like a tangible thing they can be targeting and, and wondering why we're not uh, achieving today. Yeah, I agree. So. I'll be really curious to see how that turns out at this year's U.S. Open. I'm sure you'll be there, Carl, so you can report back. Um, and I'll also be very curious to see what those news reports look like for the first few days when, when people are, reporters are looking for angles and players are looking for excuses. So as you point out, that's, that's a major source of content, uh, regardless of what the changes are, but any rule changes or court changes or any kind of, um, any kind of new factors are what players are going to point to. So that wraps up what was on my outline for this week. I think we're approaching the hour mark, so it's a good time to wrap it up. Carl, thank you as always for joining me. My pleasure, Jeff. And everyone, if you want more podcast content right now, 30 Love is the place to go. Um, I've also got a few new posts up at tennisabstract.com, so if you want to read about return aggression and some other particularly wonky topics, uh, tennisabstract.com. And... Keep an eye out there for the next episode of the podcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you then.